Good morning. Good? Hey, if you have a Bible or an app that you use, go ahead and turn to Matthew 18. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm a teaching pastor, and I'm excited to go through this text with you today in Matthew 18. Um, hey, if you're a sports fan in here, you know what a grudge match is, but if you're not a sports fan, which it's probably a difficult existence for you in Knoxville if you're not a sports fan, so I feel bad for you, but if you are not a sports fan, a grudge match is not like a normal game or a normal fight. A grudge match is where you have a contest, whether it be a fight or a game, where there is personal bad blood between the two sides, right? There's some animosity, usually coming from the last game or fight, or maybe the last few decades of games or fights. Think of uh, Holyfield-Tyson. That's, that's a grudge match. That's a blood feud right there. Think of uh, the Yankees and the Red Sox. It's one of the most well-known grudge matches. Those tickets always sell out. Um, Tennessee has their own grudge match, right? It's not the Akron Zips. Don't really care about them. They don't really care about Texas Tech or Air Force. I mean, yell out. What, what, is, what is probably one of the bigger one or two grudge matches that Tennessee plays? Florida, yeah. Florida is one of the big ones. Alabama's up there as well. Different, right? There's blood in there. Some animosity. It's not just a win or a loss. It's something totally different. And as much as we love to watch this stuff play out on TV, as much as we love to watch it happen in real time, it's a little different when grudge matches are our own personal grudge match. When we've got some bad blood ourselves. I think many of us in this room today are struggling with that. Maybe all of us. I think many, if not all of us, are wrestling with an unforgiving heart where someone has done some damage to us and hurt us in some very measurable way. Forgiveness, in my opinion, which is what we're going to talk about a little bit today, forgiveness might be, I would submit, it might be one of the most difficult things for a Christian to do. I can't think of anything else. I think forgiveness is probably one of the more difficult things for a Christian to do. C.S. Lewis says that forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. Right? He's very right. When someone damages us, hurts us, abandons us, takes a shot at us, we want justice. We want vindication to come to our side. We want those who hurt us to be held accountable. We want them to answer for it. And because that's so, and because it runs so deep in us, we usually do one of two things. We usually deal with our grudge matches out loud, or we get quiet. We get loud or we get quiet. Some of us, we get loud. We take it to the parking lot. We take it to social media. We make sure that everybody knows the harm that was done to us. We feel like if we make it public, then they have to answer for it. They can't escape the crime that they've committed against you, whether it be small or large. So we make sure that other people know about it. And whenever that happens, restoration into community is not really the goal. It's retaliation. We're taking shots. Facebook's been fantastic for this, by the way, too, hasn't it? All of you have seen those posts. But sometimes we don't get loud. Sometimes we get quiet. And I think this is probably where most of us are at. And that's because if we were to bring it up, if we were to make it public, then that damages our reputation. And our reputation means more to us than justice does even. A little bit more enslaved to that. So we become resentful and we do damage to them in other ways. Now this is big in the South. This option seems to find more favor here in the Deep South where reputation is highly prized and we hide our, our offense behind smiles. Generations of smiles even. 
secretly hoping that people fail. Even if you never talk to them, even if you never tell them the hurt and the damage that they've done to you, even if you've never made it public, secretly hoping that you could just get even a little piece of news of them not doing well so that you could feel that vindication inside. Sometimes we even spiritualize it. Maybe God is getting them back for what they did to me. Oh, did that happen to them? Good. They had it coming. Some of us, we get loud. Some of us, we get quiet. And I think all of this started way back with Adam in the garden. As we say all things, start back with Adam in the garden where our flesh, uh, I'll just say it this way, I think we have a genetic proclivity towards not forgiving people, but hating people. And actually putting hate against hate and hurt against hurt. Paying back. And this goes all the way back to an odd character in the Bible. Some of you have never read about His name was Lamech. And we're going to put this passage on the screen. Don't feel like you need to turn there. I'd rather you keep your finger in Matthew 18 because that's going to be the text that does most of the heavy lifting for us today. But this one is a great one to start with. Lamech, not too far down the family tree from Adam himself. And he says to his two wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. That's odd phraseology. What's going on right here? Lamech is claiming here to have taken more revenge on the man that hurt him than God even took on Cain for murdering his brother Abel. He's saying, oh, you think, you think God got Cain? <laughs> You should have seen me when I took this guy out. You think Cain got a bad end of the deal. You should have seen the guy that wronged me. And it seems like it's over-the-top language, but I have to be honest with you. I kind of understand this guy. I kind of understand where Lamech is coming from. Because I think I've grown up in a culture, and I think you have too, where it's become noble to get revenge. It's the cultural accepted thing to get payback. And forgiveness equals weakness. Think about it. What are some of the phrases? Don't get mad, get even. Wow. <laughs> Glad. <laughs> and getting even makes you... Who said that? Props up, man. He's, at least he yelled it out. Hey, at least he yelled it out. <laughs> How about this one? If you mess with the bull, you get the... Right, right. What goes around, it's culturally bred in all of us, isn't it? It's in all of us. These are things that Lamech said. They're definitely things our culture says. These are things that we say. It's just not something Jesus ever said. In the study on things that Jesus never said, and then as we look at forgiveness, he never said, hey, you can forgive, but you can never forget. I know we love to say that in our culture. Jesus never said it. He, never all, he also never said you can just cover over it. You can just always kind of keep it tucked aside. Keep it in your sleeve. Keep it in your pocket. That little thing that they did to you. It's totally fine to hold grudges. It's totally fine to resent someone, especially if they're real nasty and they hurt you bad. Or if maybe they just keep doing it even though they said they're sorry and they never want to do it again. Then it's okay. He never said that. Never said that. He said this instead in Luke 17. Real quick, real quick little passage. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I think this is a good place to pray. Um, because I think, I don't think I know, we are definitely going to scrape on some wounds in here today. Okay? 
every time I speak a passage or teach a text or preach a sermon, I have to, to be honorable before you, I have to let it deal with my heart. This week was tough. As I sit and think, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have unforgiveness, God. I'll just preach from what I've known in the past to have overcome. But as I sit and God provokes a memory, I have to write down a name. Someone I've not forgiven. And then another name came. And then another name came. And before long, I'm looking at a list of where I've not handled this text very well from my life. So when I preach to you today, I preach from the posture of someone who has not arrived, but someone who's fighting alongside you, looking to see God's glory come bearing in my life in this area. So let's pray. Father, I know this is going to be a tough sermon to hear with open ears, but God, open our ears and take all of our, I guess, distractions away. Father, to help us hear this um, with nothing to lose, to be very open, very honest with ourselves, and let your text, your words speak to us as clearly today as it did whenever it came out of your mouth for the very first time. Jesus, we love you. We love you. Help us know how to love you more. Open up the areas of our heart that need to be changed and teach us something about forgiveness today that we have radically left behind. Father, you're a good God to us. You're very generous, very gentle, very sweet to us. And it's in your name we, we preach. It's in your name that we listen. It's in your name that we study. Amen. If we look at Matthew 18, and this is the text I want to spend our time in today. Matthew 18, we're going to start in verse 15. Just to frame it, what's going on is Jesus is talking with his disciples. He's describing the kingdom of God and how people interact inside of this kingdom of God. And of course, the whole giant chunk of the text is talking about humility and how we interact. But then he gets to this spot here where he talks about sin and offense and what we do when we start slamming into it. And he says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Just a side note, that means alone. That means keep it tight. Keep it in the can. Don't gossip. Don't ask your 16 best friends if you think you should go and talk to that person or not. That's goofy. Don't do that. Go and do it alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You know, this is a simple progression right here of how we are supposed to handle sin and how we're supposed to handle offense. Very simple. I mean, you can almost pull a flow chart out of that text. That's how easy it is, right? But Peter's there, and you know what got his wheels cranking as he listens to it. We know that because he comes right back in verse 21, and he says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? He's thinking what we would have thought. Okay, I could understand someone sinning against me and me forgiving them, but, but come on, how many times? Because John keeps doing it, and he says he's sorry, but he won't stop. And Andrew, he keeps saying that he's changing, but I don't see any change. So how often do I need to forgive? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. All right? Now, this is what's going on. Peter's not being a smart mouth. He's not trying to be cute here. He is submitting a number that he thinks is a generous number. Back then, the time this was taught, the rabbis would teach that when there was a repeat sinner, a repeat offender, you were to forgive them three times, but not necessarily a fourth. Then you could just keep it. Right? So Peter's doing the math. 
New kingdom, we're a new people. I don't know. We'll double what the rabbis say. How about seven? What about that, Jesus? What about seven times? But Jesus doesn't come back with another number, does he? He comes back with an attitude of the heart. He comes back with an entirely new posture for an entirely new people. Did you notice that he used the phrase 77 times? Did you recognize that? Jesus is reaching all the way back into Genesis 4 and taking Lamech's statement and recirculating it to talk about what kind of forgivers we are to be, what our forgiveness should look like. We are to be extreme in our forgiving, significant in our forgiving, over the top in our forgiving. Let's look at verse 23. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. That's plural. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Let's pause right there and set this up. What's going on is there's a kingdom audit. The king is settling accounts with all of his servants. Kings would do this from time to time. They would try to figure out who still owes them money and who do they owe. They're clearing the books virtually. Notice that this servant is brought in. He's brought in. He doesn't come of his own volition. A lot of scholars believe because of the level of debt and the fact that he was brought in, that it's highly likely he had criminal activity, especially enough to accrue this level of debt and the fact that he didn't come of his own volition but had to be brought to the king. And then they use this number, 10,000. 10,000 is not an arbitrary number, and it doesn't just mean a bunch. 10,000 is the highest number in the Greek numerical system. It's as high as it went for them, right? And then talent is the largest denomination that they would use. So I've heard current scholars try to uh, make an, an equivalent number today of what it would be like for us today, and you can if you want. I don't think that's the point. I've heard everything from $7 million all the way up to $2 billion. So I don't know how helpful that is, but I don't even think that's the point. What it does is it points a picture of an unpayable payment, a payment that can never be made. It would be um, like our current example of a billion gazillion I mean, a gazillion's not, is a gazillion even really a number? I don't think gazillion's a number. I think I just made that up, right? Is it? A bagazillion. A bagazillion number. That's not even a real number. But we would say that to show how extreme something is. It's like a gazillion degrees out here. It's like a gazillion flies here. What's up? We would use that to say over the top. It's an idea. It's, it's not a real number. Let's look at verse 25. And since he could not pay, because it's a gazillion dollars, who can? His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything, even though that's not likely. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now listen, initially he was going to sell this guy. If he sold this guy and his wife and his kids, he wouldn't even make one talent back. The idea here is not to make his money back, or even a little bit, or even a fraction of a fraction. The idea was punishment. He was punishing him, and it was a just punishment. This is righteous judgment that's going on right here. This is a picture of righteous judgment, right? But then he forgives him. So, so far in the parable, this is what I want you to see. Forgiveness hinges on the forgiver. The person who is forgiven they need the help real bad, but they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. The forgiver pays what the forgiven was owed, right? I mean, this is a bad loan, straight up. I mean, who's bearing, once this was forgiven, who's bearing the brunt of that? The forgiving person. 
They're the ones that are losing a gazillion dollars. They're the ones that are having to serve. They're the ones that are having to work and deal with that, that loss. The burden is on them. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Let's pause it again. A hundred denarii. You might have been taught in the past that that's an insignificant number, like 50 cents. It's not really true. That's the equivalent today of between 15 and $20,000. It's a significant, significant debt, right? I mean, by law... This servant, he had every right legally. He had a legal right to execute judgment on this other servant for not paying the 20 grand. He had a legal right to put him in jail. All of that was okay as far as the law and the culture would have seen. He just didn't have a moral right to do it. He didn't have a moral right. What I want you to see today, and you're going to hear it many times, is forgiven people must be a forgiving people. Or forgiven people must be a forgiving people. It's the proof and the mark that we have met with a forgiving king. It's the hardest thing for a Christian to do, right? You might have a legal right to have an offense with somebody in your life. The culture might tell you, you've got every right to not forgive that person. Your king just disagrees. That's all it's saying. Your king disagrees. But Luke, you don't even know what happened to me. You don't know what that person did to me. You don't know what my dad did to me. You don't know what my mom did to me. You don't know what was taken from me. You, you don't know. You weren't there. You're right. I wasn't. I won't even pretend to be there. But Jesus knows. Christ our Lord knows just as clearly as you do what hurts you, what kind of pop you took, what kind of damage you incurred. Jesus knows. So let's just look and see what he says. Let's look and see how he addresses us. Verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should, not have had mer- should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's a great parable. Notice is here he calls him a wicked servant. He's not wicked because he had a debt. He's wicked because he had unforgiveness. It's a wicked thing. It's offensive to our king to have an unforgiving heart when people are pleading for forgiveness. Whenever you've been forgiven of great things, yet you hold unforgiveness, the king calls it wicked. Some of you probably think it's really not that big of a deal for you to have unforgiveness in your heart. That's how I was this week. I mean, I'm looking at the names on my list of people that I've just not done a very excellent job with when it comes to unforgiveness. And I'm thinking, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, that person doesn't even know that I've got unforgiveness towards them. Is it really that big of a deal? Our king calls it wicked. He says it's not an option for me. He calls it wicked. Now, here's the trouble with this passage that some people bump into. If you read this closely, you might be asking yourself the question, did this guy lose salvation? Did he lose grace? Luke, it looks like to me that this is a picture of grace coming to people. And it looks like he loses grace. Is that possible? 
right? So I'm going to answer it up front so you don't have to text in the question. One caution I would give you is this is a parable. It's not an allegory. Parables are not allegories. An allegory is a story told where you might have some hidden meanings behind details that extrapolate to a real-life event for us today, all right? I just broad-brushed it. If you're an English teacher, just give me grace on that, right? But I know that parables are not allegories. So we can't draw a straight line from every detail and every character in that and every occurrence to something that happens today and say that's the way it is. In fact, a lot of parables are destroyed that way. The goal of a parable, the beauty of a parable, is that it is a story told that whenever the listeners listen, they see a hook, like a hairpin turn in the storyline, something you didn't expect. A a jig when there should have been a jag, something unexpected. And whenever there's a hook there, if you watch it, That's the teaching point. That will always be the teaching point in a parable. We're about to do a class. After the partnership class, we'll start up another class on how to read the Bible, and this will be one of the things we go through whenever you start to interpret what parables um, uh, mean mean for us today. And and this is one of the things that, that we'll go over. So when you look at this parable as a good example, we would have all expected for this wicked servant to have left and not been so wicked. I mean, if he's been forgiven a gazillion dollars... I can see him, in my mind's eye, looking at a guy that owes 15 grand and saying, hey, don't worry about it, man. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. Let's go get some lunch. But he doesn't. He chokes him. And therein, folks, is the hairpin. That's the teaching moment. So I will say this. Don't read this as an allegory because that's not the way it was ever meant when it was first told. So that's one point. The other one is that God does not offer us forgiveness conditionally. He offers us forgiveness unconditionally. Remember, remember what the Bible says in Ephesians 2 where it says that our salvation is a gift of God, not of our works, so that we can't boast about anything. Your works did not garner you salvation to begin with, so your works aren't going to lose that salvation for you. It wasn't up to you. It wasn't your works. It was the works of another, a more righteous king. He's the one that pushed the weight. He's the one that pulled the weight. So you failing to do it loses you nothing. It's an unconditional grace. That's why it's called grace. If it wasn't unconditional, it would no longer be grace. That's the idea of it. It's not our work. It's Jesus' work. But, but, if you go in to meet our king and you leave the same way that you walked in, that would make you an unchanged person. It would make you unchanged. This man does not illustrate a man changed, but a man unchanged. The wicked servant did not have a changed heart. It doesn't illustrate a man losing grace. This illustrates a man who never, never tasted it. It was shown to him, but he didn't apprehend it for himself. That's what this shows. That's the point of this. So if you take the parable and the teaching point that it was meant to convey to us, and you press it into a principle for us today, it would be this, that a forgiven people must be a forgiving people. A forgiven people must be a forgiving people. And it provokes my heart. Whenever I read the parable, whenever I pray over this, it provokes my heart to ask the question, whose throat do I have my hands around choking as I demand repayment whenever... God's hands have been pulled off my throat. He's been very unconditional with his forgiveness. Whose throat do I have my hands around demanding that they pay me what I owe? Demanding that they meet my sense of glory? Because, folks, this, this is the thing. This is a gospel parable. It paints such a beautiful picture of the gospel. If you can see it. Because this is it. 
Christian, we are the wicked servants. That's us in this parable. We're not the second servant, we're the first. It's our criminal activity that lands us in court with a debt that we cannot repay. And the law is the law, and the law causes us guilty. And when our king comes to judge us harshly, it's a just judgment. It's a righteous judgment. I am the one who racked up a bill. I am the one that owes a gazillion gazillions. But God had mercy on me. And if you're a Christian in this house today, God had mercy on you. And guess who bears the weight and the burden of that forgiveness? The one who's doing the forgiving. He's the one that bears it. The gospel is that He has mercy on me, not because God's having a good day, but because He has a good son. Not because he's just feeling a little bit generous this day and woke up on the good side of the bed, but because he is generosity. That's why, in this truth, it should radically reinterpret how you see sin, how you see offense, how you see forgiveness. It should radically reinterpret it for you. I will always have people wrong me. You will too. I will always have people that damage me, and you will too. But before I put my hands around their throat, even outward or inward, before I put my hands on their throat, I have to remember what my king did with mine. That's the point of this parable. And just to clear up the fog a little bit, I, I probably need to draw a little bit of attention to what forgiveness is not. <laughs> forgiveness is really monkeyed up in the kingdom that I see just as a pastor from my perspective. One thing is, is that forgiveness is not ignoring excusing, disregarding, burying, covering, trivializing sin. It's not disregarding it. It's not ignoring it. It's not excusing it. Luke, the first passage that we read, it says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke him. That requires action. We do something. We don't just sit there and deal with it and take it in. We actually move forward and we inject ourselves into their lives and we rebuke them. In Matthew, it says, bring it to their attention. Let them know. We're not good at this. We're not good. What we usually do is just say, hey, it's no big deal. It doesn't really matter. Notice the king in this parable, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, what, a gazillion? Ah, it's, listen, it's not that big of a deal. Let's move on. Forget that. Come on. Who cares? Forget that. It, was no, it didn't even hurt me. He doesn't say that. He recognizes it for what it is. It's a gazillion. I think for most people, when I say most people, I'm right in the middle. I'm the president of this club, right, where it's much, much more difficult to confront people than it is just to shut up and deal with it, just to take it, take it on the chin. That seems so much more noble, doesn't it, than to be a whiner and a bleeder and go up and talk about it? Doesn't it feel like that? It's wrong. Whenever someone comes up to you and says, hey, you've sinned against me in this. You've done me damage here. It's not good, friends. It's not good to look at that and say, ah, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. It minimizes the sin. It's sin. God declares war on it, and we do too. Weigh it for what it is. Let's be honest. It's sin. Just say, I forgive you. Just say, I forgive you. But don't say it doesn't matter, because it does. It does. Some of you actually think that you have forgiven someone. Some of you actually think that you've forgiven someone when all you've done is taken their sin and saying it's really not that big of a deal, right? And what you really mean when you say that is that, hey, your sin, it was a real sin, but it didn't devastate me. It just was a little pop. I think I can bear it. But if that's the case, then you're dealing with it on your own strength. 
and on your own power, and you're not letting the cross interpret how you forgive. And what will happen is, on the 58th time they've wronged you, you will run out of strength, you will run out of your own might, and their credit line will be due, and you will hate them. You will have unforgiveness. You have to forgive people from the posture of the foot of the cross. You cannot do it based on how big the sin was against you. You can't just wash it away. You can't just say it's not that big of a deal because it doesn't feel like it's that big of a deal. You have to look at the cross when you forgive them for it to be properly done or else it will come back. It will come back. Forgiving is also not a one-time event. This is hard. It's not a one-time event, though. I don't know who said this saying. It's brilliant. I don't know who to attribute it to. It's not me. But someone says that forgiveness is not forgetting to remember, but remembering to forget. It's not forgetting to remember, but it's remembering to forget. We looked at this passage um, a couple weeks ago in Isaiah 43. This is God speaking to His people, and He says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. And we talked about the difference between not remembering and forgetting. They're very different. Forgetting is like, where's my other shoe? Right? Where's my other shoe? I can't find it. I forgot where I put it. Or, oh my gosh, bro, I'll be there in 10 minutes. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's forgetting. That's a shortness of mind. Not remembering is a deepness of heart. It's recollecting what's going on and immediately pushing it back, immediately placing it down. There's a difference. I think this is most difficult for us as, as a church, as a people of God. I think it is most difficult when we bump into the people that we see all the time. The people that, uh, we, they, I guess we give them the most opportunity to offend us because we see them all the time. They're significant people, constant people. It's hard for us because they turn into repeat offenders. They get just all this leash to damage us over and over and over again. Right, married people? It's hard. Right, parents? It's hard. Some of you have said this phrase. Hey, hey, I'll start forgiving you when you start changing. Right? Has that ever come out of anyone's mouth? Hey, I'll forgive you, but you've got to quit doing that. Quit just saying you're sorry and just do it. Our king remembered to forget. Our king remembered to forget. We are repeat offenders. We must remember to forget. And this takes daily application. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I've got to move on. Forgiveness is also not always reconciliation. It doesn't always mean becoming friends and restoring the status quo. Reconciliation is the idea of enemies becoming friends, truces, close-knit relationships. That's the idea of reconciliation. That's not always what forgiveness is. Notice that the king does not immediately loan this dude more money. <laughs> he doesn't give him a bunch more money. Why? Because he doesn't deserve it. He's not trustworthy. If we had a, a, a young woman in here who was abused, right, by someone in the church, abused, we would expect her, by definition and mandate of the Bible, to forgive this guy for abusing her. We would never expect him to reconcile. We would never expect him to be buddies like it never happens. Forgiveness is a gift, a gift that we've received and that yet we give. But reconciliation is something that is earned because there is consequence to sin. There are ramifications to sin. Sin is not overlooked. It's not always the same thing as reconciliation. But Luke, I thought you said to remember to forget. We do. We release our judgment of their sin, but we do not release trust to the untrustworthy. There is a difference. If you hate the person still, 
If they've wronged you and you hate them in your heart, you have not forgiven them, friend. Lie to yourself all you want. You have not forgiven them if you hate them in your heart. You could hate what they did, and that's different. I've got to move on. There's some steps in our heart that must take place as we forgive because it is a process. It's a, it's a pretty deep process. One is that we need to contend honestly with ourselves. How deep was the sin? Honestly. Scale of 1 to 10. How big was it on your Richter scale? How much did it rock you? Was it small? Was it big? Is it constant? How does it rank? How close was the relationship to you? I mean, really assess these things. How significant is the tie between you and the one that offended you? How open is your wound? Has it been 20 years? Is it still gaping open? Is it still bleeding? Does it just have a thousand band-aids on it? Time and... What does it look like? I've bumped into people in the past who have been abused by parents. This is an example. Who have been abused by parents and they will say something like, yeah, my dad abused me, but it's not a big deal. My mom and my dad, they were rough on me growing up. They kind of hit me around a little bit, but it's, it's, it's cool. It's not a big deal. No, friend, that is a big deal. That's a big deal. It's a big offense. It's a serious wound by people that were close to you. Significant relationships that God arranged. And there was a mistrust and a mishandling of you. That is not a small deal. But I think in the church, somehow it's being taught to people, and I don't know how, that it is the Christian thing to do to blow off stuff like that. It is not. The sin is a sin. Contend honestly with it. And then forgive it. And then forgive it. Some of you have not been honest. And you think that Jesus wants you to minimize that sin, trivialize it, the sin that was against you. That's not his posture towards that sin. Another thing we need to do with our heart is we need to forgive it from the foot of the cross. What that means is it's not on our own strength and power, not on how we feel that day. And I know how it is. Some days I'll wake up and I'm feeling really good and generous and I just forgive everybody. Oh, did you just do that? Cool. No big deal. And the next day I wake up and I'm tired, slept bad, and I'm feeling grumpy, and then everybody owes me for what they've done, right? I'm a victim. I'm the biggest victim in the world. But we forgive from the foot of the cross, not on how we feel. That's so arbitrary. But what God did is not arbitrary. The third thing, we continue to contend with it. We maintain the forgiveness. We nurture the forgiveness. We remember to forget. And again, who takes the hit for this? The forgiving person. You will have to serve repeatedly. You will have to bear the burden of that repeatedly. You'll have to fight through it repeatedly. This is what C.S. Lewis says on that portion of forgiveness. He says, it is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single person a great injury. Probably not. But to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life. To keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? He says, only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say our prayers each night. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. We have to remember to forget. And it takes daily application. Daily. You have to work on it daily. As we finish this word, this sermon today, I'd like to finish at a fitting place, I think, which is the table. We say table, if you've not been here for very long or it's an unfamiliar term to you, we just mean communion. We mean bread and juice, but we mean much more than that. We mean 
what's behind it, the story that it symbolizes, the good news of what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. It's the beautiful picture of the Gospel enacted visually for us. And we get to participate with it in worship. That's what I mean when I say it. Mark, in the book of Mark, we see this. And whenever you stand praying, which we're about to, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. What does that mean? I mean, show the Gospels alive in you. Show that the Gospels actually taken place and taken root. Sh- show that you've met with your King. Show that your debt was canceled. Communion is a beautiful place to do this. Where we cancel debts back and forth around the evidence of a canceled debt. Where we cancel debts horizontally around a table that recognizes a canceled debt vertically. It's a beautiful place for it. Mark shows us that. When you go to somebody, as Mark is talking about, that you have an offense with, when you go to somebody, just a couple warnings. As you get motion and traction underneath your feet, you you decide, I'm done burying this, and I'm done ignoring it. I'm going to talk to that person, just like Luke said. Don't go with glee. Go with reluctance. Because you're a sinner. You're a repeat offender. You've offended people. Go, go with reluctance. Go, don't, don't go with the heart to just get something off your chest. Right? Go with the goal of restoration, not retaliation. I see it a lot. It's weird when I see this thing where people go up to other people and say, hey, I've, I've got to repent, man, because I've never liked you before. And I just got to let you know that, but I'm real sorry for it now. Don't do, listen, don't do that. That's goofy. You just, that's a drive-by shooting. You just dumped all your garbage on them for no apparent reason at all. There's nothing they can do with that, right? Now there is an offense, possibly. <laughs> Don't do that. But if there is sin, if there is sin, go and talk to the person about it. But do it weighing heavily what's going on right here, not just to get stuff off your chest. You know, there's different people I'm talking to today. I know that. Some of you have struggled in repeat forgiveness. Some of you, uh, now if you're married in here, I know you struggle with this. Because I'm married and I struggle with this. Repeat forgiveness over and over again, right? You keep trying to be faithful, have good days, you have bad days. But it just, the grudge match kind of just lifts its head every now and then. It's difficult. My appeal for you is to contend for the gospel. To remember to forget It actively recalls, this gospel that we serve, it actively recalls that there is nothing to recall. Think about that. It actively recalls that there is nothing to recall. We must remember that we are repeat offenders ourselves, and God yet chooses to not remember. He puts it as far as the east is from the west and buries it underneath the depth of the ocean. That's how far the shame and the offense has been taken away. And I will not lie to you and tell you that it gets easier. Because I'm not so sure it does. As a married man of 15 years, and I got, a good, I got a good deal in my marriage. I married up. It's hard. Some days it's easy. Some, some days it's not. People I do life with, it, some days it's easy. Some days it's not. I won't promise you that your situation will get easier. But I do think it can get more gospel-centered in how we handle forgiveness. Forgiven people must be a forgiving people. I don't think, I think some of you might not even struggle with forgiveness because you've resolved just not to do it. It's not even a struggle because you've written it off. 
I know a lot of people in here think they have a pass because whatever happened to you was really bad. So you don't have to give it up. Because whatever was done to you was so deep and so sharp, you have a right to hold on to it. In a room this size, statistically, no less than 10 to 12 people in here have been sexually abused. Let that sit. Some of you have been physically abused. Some of you have been emotionally destroyed, stolen from, abandoned. I've got to tell you, I'm sorry that that's happened to you. I'm deeply sorry. It's a very real offense that happened. It's a very real thing. And I'm sorry that that happened. The, the, the greatest encouragement I can give you, if that's you, is that Jesus came to this earth to destroy what is currently destroying you. That's what, he, that's what he did. He came to destroy sin. Now, I know for some of you, that's not good enough. It's not good enough that Jesus came to do that. You want repayment. You want that. You want the person to go down. You refuse to forgive your debt. You have your hands around their throat. They will always owe you. And as careful as I can say this, I have to say you have gospel amnesia. You have forgotten that you were hauled before a court where you owed a great debt via your criminal activity, and justice would have been to punish you for eternity. Yet, your forgiving king bared the burden and paid the debt for you. And I think you're forgetting that. You might be forgetting that. You've been forgiven. I spoke with a woman not too long ago who had a real hard time forgiving somebody. And I would tell her this story. I'd show her the text. Her response is, I don't care. I don't care. I'm not going to forgive them because I don't want to. And I don't care what the parable says. And I don't care about all that stuff. Maybe their heart's unchanged. Maybe you need to think about your heart. Listen, forgiving someone is not endorsing what they did. And it's not saying what they did is cool or okay. It's not doing that. It's just releasing your judgment against that person. That's what it is. It's merely saying that the debt they owed you has been released. Now, most of the sermon, and I'm almost done, most of the sermon, we've talked about people who have repented to you and then you forgive. What about the people who haven't repented? Maybe you've got some parents that did something wrong to you and then they died. They didn't repent. Maybe someone doesn't even care and they're not even sorry. So they have not repented. What do you do then? You release them to God. You release them to God. When people don't repent, we release them to God. When they do repent, we release them directly. When they repent to us, we release them directly. When they do not, we just give them to God. Release them to God. Where do we see that in the Bible? What did Jesus say from the cross? The same thing Stephen said as stones were coming at his head and he was dying. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Jesus didn't say, I forgive you. Stephen didn't say, I forgive you. They gave them up to God because those people were not repentant. They're busy throwing rocks. They're busy hurling insults. They're busy mocking and laughing. But he gave them to God. Father, forgive them. And released their dead over them. But this means for you, if you struggle with forgiveness, it means that you, you'll no longer be sick inside. Some of you have literally made yourself sick from unforgiveness. Just constantly worried about if the other person's getting away with it. Anxiety has run you over. And now it's affecting all your other relationships. Distant. Untrusting. 
disinterested. Forgiven people must be a forgiving people. Must be a forgiving people. And then lastly, I think there are people here listening today that are far from Jesus. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. And, and maybe one of the evidences in, in your life is that people have wronged you and you've never wanted to let it go. You've always wanted unforgiveness. You feel like it's your right to have control over them by unforgiving them and you're not even interested in giving it away. Some of you might not even have a relationship with Jesus. You might be very far from Christ. And I will say to you that one day there will be an audit. Our king will settle debts. Righteous judgment will happen. People will be punished. I have to say that. And as you see this man begging for his life, he realized at that moment, on his knees, crying out for his own life, that he was no longer in charge. He was no longer the man, no longer autonomous, no longer his own island, no longer just able body, no, no longer able to do whatever he wanted to do. He found himself dependent on another's mercy. He's no longer sufficient to save himself. And I think some of you still see yourself as totally sufficient. You've never been in a place where you've pleaded for your life. Some of you are still your own kings. There will be an audit. My appeal to you, my appeal to you is to take the crown off of your head and put it at the feet of the king who has radically forgiven you. Seeing the grace that has come to you. Our king has made provision and he's made a payment of his own treasure, made a payment to work off your debt. So I would just appeal to you today, today to recognize that. And when you walk out and you leave the presence of the king, not to have an unchanged heart, demanding from everybody else what you have been shown freely, but to respond and have your heart changed. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand up, and the team's going to come out, and we're going to pray. I know it, listen, I know it was a difficult sermon today, not a lot of jokes. It feels like a brimstone sermon, Luke. You're feeling like you're a little harsh today, but there's nothing harsh about the grace of showing canceled debt. That is not harsh. We're talking about a king that has gracefully forgiven debt. Now, as we go through the rest of the service, and you'll see the lyrics of the songs, and the band is going to lead us into worship. We will have the table back there of your own timing. Whenever you feel like it as a Christian, we just ask you to go back and take communion if you want to do it. Take it with your wife, take it with your, your comm group, with your roommate, however you want to do it. But today, as you do it, if you have an offense against somebody, or someone has caused you an offense, and you need to talk to them about it, what a beautiful time to settle accounts. What a beautiful time to extend grace. What a beautiful time to enact the gospel as you take part in a visual gospel. It's a beautiful time for it. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for being a generous king. God, you forgave our debts. You forgave them. You were satisfied by the debt. You didn't just, you didn't just wreck it and just cancel it and just write it off and excuse it and ignore the debt. You paid it for me. I owed a gazillion gazillions, and you paid a gazillion gazillions for me. Your grace is so deep. And I realize more and more, as deep as my sin plunges, as deep as my sin goes, your grace is even deeper. I am more hopelessly lost 
than I could ever imagine. And I am more deeply loved than I can even imagine. You are so good to us. And as we just think and celebrate and sing and pray and thank you for how you handled us and how you took your hands off of our throats, help us as a people remove our hands from the throats of others around us. God, as a forgiven people, help us be a forgiving people. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're such a gracious Lord to us, such a mighty King. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.